This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Thank you for the scripture reading, which is taken today from Matthew chapter 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away. While we were asleep, while we were asleep, if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Living God. By your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see the new light of this day. Open our lips to tell of the empty tomb. And open our hearts to believe the good news through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, we are of all people the most to be pitied. And our gathering today is quite a sad and pathetic celebration, an exercise of wishful thinking by some very lonely and desperate people. We're here today to testify to each other that Jesus Christ, in fact, is risen. And we too stand as witnesses of the resurrection, part of a very long chain of witnesses going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, passing on to each other the good news that Jesus is not here in this tomb. He is not to be sought for among the dead. He is risen. And we're testifying not merely by hearsay, but because we, in fact, in our own lives, 
have experienced the living and risen Jesus. He is here among us as the people of God. The New Testament contains no less than five different accounts of the resurrection, the one that we heard from Matthew, as well as the Gospels of Mark and Luke and John, as well as the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter. And it's striking that what we have are five quite independent accounts, and it's actually a little difficult to put these side by side and to reconcile the details. How many women actually were there? Was the angel sitting on the stone? Was the angel waiting for the ladies inside the tomb? And we can tell that these five different accounts are not five people who sat down around a conference table to collude, to make sure they all had their story straight as they were foisting an enormous fraud upon the world. What we have here in these five somewhat different accounts are five witnesses of a crime scene or of a car accident who've seen the event from five different distinct angles and are putting these stories together. The details are somewhat different, but they're all describing the same person and the same events. Our story begins after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. The sun is rising. The day is breaking. And what we have here is the beginning of a new era. Time itself and the way we mark time is changing. And I can't help thinking about the Genesis account in the very beginning of your Bible, if you go back thousands of years, even before the resurrection of Jesus. Because it was on the very first Friday, the sixth day of the week, that humanity was created. Man and woman in the image of God, and God declared it to be very good. And it's on another Friday, the Friday we call good, that humanity is redeemed by the second and true Adam on the cross. And just as on the seventh day of creation, God rested from his labors, on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, Jesus is resting, sleeping in the tomb, the one who said, it is finished. But now we have a new day, an eighth day, a day that did not exist in the creation account because here something radically new is happening, something that demands a new calendar that doesn't fit into the old timeline, the old calendar, the old way of looking at things. God is doing something startling and abrupt and absolutely brand new. And the first two people to witness it are not the people you would have expected. Jesus 12 disciples, these 12 men that he had commissioned to be his apostles and his closest followers. The gospel accounts tell us it was two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, whoever she was. Not the male disciples. These men have been absolutely shattered by the crucifixion of Jesus. All their fondest hopes and dreams were smashed when Jesus was arrested and pinned to the cross to die. These are not people who are eager to go to the tomb. They are paralyzed with fear and with despair. And all the meaning of their lives has collapsed and fallen apart. The first witnesses are women. The fact that actually would have been considerably embarrassing to the first Christians because people in ancient world believed that women were extremely unreliable, emotional, hysterical, 
subjective. Men could be trusted. Men, as we all know, are very objective, extremely rational, not the sort of people to let our private judgment get in the way of a public event. Women were considered so untrustworthy in the ancient world, their testimony was not even admissible in court. If the early Christians were inventing the resurrection from whole cloth, if they had gotten together in a room and decided, we're going to come up with a story that is going to allow us to seize power and allow all these people to come into our cult where we can control them, these are the most incompetent fraudsters in the history of defrauding people. Because they have chosen as their first witnesses the least trustworthy of all. But God, as God loves to do, chooses the weak to shame the strong. And there is a profound symbolism in the fact that it was these two women who were chosen, not the men. And it's St. Augustine who notes that it was the woman in paradise who first announced death to her husband. And now in the church, it's the woman who first announced salvation to the men. The apostles, he says, were to announce to the nations the resurrection of Christ. But it was the woman who announced it to the apostles. The apostles to the apostles. And yet, if you had listened to Ken's reading carefully, and if you look at the other three Gospels, you'll notice that neither the woman nor anyone else witnesses the resurrection itself. They experience the effects, they feel the aftershock, but no one actually sees the resurrection. They see what is not there, the empty tomb, the body that has vanished. They experience the resurrected Lord Jesus himself appearing to them, but they do not witness the resurrection. God's most awesome act is not witnessed by human eyes. The guards are lying there unconscious. The disciples are despairing in their beds. And even these early rising women have gotten out of bed too late to see what God has been doing in the dead of night. Here's what is described in Matthew's account. A great earthquake. In the very first light of dawn, there is a rumbling deep underground. The rocks start to shake. The old order of things, which seems so solid and so dependable, suddenly no longer feel so stable because there is a new age of life breaking in. Security guards are in their 125 booth watching YouTube on their phones, as I imagine, and they pop their heads out to see a strange figure clothed in lightning. And they're so freaked out, these guys, they begin shaking and trembling uncontrollably before passing out on the ground. In Matthew's words, they become like dead men. Deeply ironic that the living become like the dead, because inside the safely locked tomb, the one everyone, friends and enemies, believed was cold and dead, has stirred and come to life. The woman arrives. And here's the sight that greets them. The open mouth of the tomb. Two guards 
collapsed on the ground, and a mysterious figure sitting cheerily on the stone that he has rolled away. The angel says to them, don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. I find it remarkable that in the hour of Jesus' triumph, He's not introduced as the son of God or the son of man or the king of kings or the Lord of lords. Jesus who was crucified. And every Easter Sunday, we need to remind ourselves of the strong link forged between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. The resurrection and the crucifixion belong together. And we must never think or speak of one without the other. In the light of the resurrection, we realize the crucifixion is not the shameful defeat of God that needs to be quietly hidden away or even erased. The risen one is the crucified one. And the crucified one is the risen one. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the one who burns with light and stands in unapproachable glory is the very one who died for our sins. And so here in the light of this Sunday dawn, the horrible disaster of Good Friday becomes radically reinterpreted in the light of Easter Monday. This is why we say Good Friday. Because without the resurrection, the cross of Christ was a disaster. It was the defeat of God. It was the end of all our fondest hopes. The resurrection assures us that Jesus' death on the cross for our sins was actually effective, that God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, and our risen high priest is going to go to the right hand of God to offer himself as the finished, completed sacrifice for the sins, not only of us, but of the whole world. He is not here, for he is risen one of the weightiest sentences in the New Testament. We rejoice at the absence of Jesus from the tomb. And clearly what the angel is talking about here is a physical and bodily resurrection, the only kind of resurrection that there is. He's not saying the dead prophet's cause will live on. You will remember Jesus in your hearts. He's not even saying that from time to time, Jesus' ghostly, ethereal presence will manifest itself among us. That is not resurrection at all. As N.T. Wright says, that is just a redescription of death. What the gospel writers announce is the defeat of death. And the empty tomb is the evidence of a physical, bodily resurrection. In John Updike's poem, Seven Stanzas at Easter, he writes, Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule renit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered, out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor. 
analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the events a parable, sign painted in the fainted credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back. Not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. You know, God's salvation is not a private religious experience. We know all about that. And there are many religions and many philosophies that offer that. We are talking and we are announcing the liberation of our entire humanity, soul and body. What we're announcing here is a new cosmic order where decay and death and frustration and futility and fear are being rolled back, are being reversed, are being undone, and where everything sad comes untrue. Come, see where he lay, the angel says. He's not demanding blind faith. He's not trying to make the woman undergo a lobotomy to get rid of their brains and just believe what he says. He steps aside and invites the woman to look into the empty tomb and to see for themselves that Jesus is not there. I think in Matthew's account, we can say, the angel did not roll the stone away to let Jesus out. He rolled the stone away to let the woman in. They look, but not for long, because there is an urgent task. Go quickly and tell his disciples. This event is not for their secret comfort. Much as they would have loved to stay and take in, these women and all those who witness have a responsibility to testify, to go quickly, to run, to rush to those in despair and tell them the unbelievable news, to be the apostles to the apostles. And here's the message the angel gives them. Tell his disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Aslan is on the move. And the disciples are going to have to move quickly themselves to catch up with them. Jesus does not appear to them as they lie in their beds in despair. They have to rouse themselves and go on a long journey, a journey of faith, if they are going to meet with Jesus to see him and to touch them. The women obey the angel. They rush from the tomb. They run in a great hurry, Matthew tells us, filled with fear and great joy. A strange Seemingly contradictory mixture of emotions within themselves. There's terror and gladness battling within them. And as they're running and as they're wrestling, trying to take in what they've experienced, Jesus meets them on the road. He stops them and he greets them. And I wonder, why did Jesus bother to do this? It seems like a superfluous appearance because he doesn't tell them anything the angel has already told them. But there are no superfluous appearances of Jesus. And I almost feel like Jesus had given this mission to the angel and then afterwards thought, no, I want to tell the woman myself. These women who were faithful, who stayed with me, 
who did not desert me, who watched with me at the foot of the cross. I want to personally assure these faithful women of my presence. And when Jesus appears to the two Marys, they rush to him, they fall at his feet, they grasp his feet, and they worship him. That is a remarkable thing for a Jewish person to do in the first century who had been trained and drilled in monotheism, warned of the blasphemy and the idolatry of worshiping other gods. But they cannot help themselves. There's no reflection. This is not a thought-through response. The presence of the risen Jesus compels them to fall on their faces and worship him. It will take centuries for the church to draw out a theological response. Who is this Jesus that we find ourselves trusting and worshiping. But even in this brief description, we notice something profound about Jesus. This risen one is both human and divine. He has feet that we grasp onto, and yet we give him the worship only God deserves. And then Jesus speaks. Notice in this whole chapter in Matthew chapter 28, No human beings speak. But Jesus speaks, and he tells them, don't be afraid. The great Easter exhortation, do not be afraid, little flock. I am risen. And Jesus is saying the same thing to all of us today by his spirit. Let all fear vanish. Let all terror melt away. Let all anxiety disappear. Let joy alone fill your hearts. And go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Jesus repeats what the angel said. Almost. Because the angel had spoken of the disciples. And the angel's words, once the woman repeated them to the disciples, could have been perceived as somewhat ominous and threatening. What does Jesus want to do with us? Is he angry? And these disciples certainly deserved a severe rebuke. These men who had boasted so much and then deserted their master in his hour of need. But Jesus addresses them as brothers. An amazing expression of kinship to those who had abandoned him. Easter morning is suffused with forgiveness. And we gather here today as failing disciples ourselves, not to meet with Jesus' rebuke, but his consolation. Jesus has not risen from the dead to scold his disciples for their weak faith, to give them a lecture and denounce them. Jesus is eager for our fellowship. He's eager to send us on a mission. A mission that is about to be launched The woman ran, and I'm sure the disciples, once they had taken in what the women were saying, traveled very briskly up to Galilee. But in Matthew's account, the forces of evil move even faster to launch the counter-mission. The guards go back, and they report to the chief priests what they'd seen, what they had seen. They were unconscious most of the time, but they had witnessed before being knocked out an earthquake, the strange figure And when they'd come to an empty tomb, the body vanished. 
the religious authorities must have been dumbstruck at first, but they collect themselves very quickly. They assemble an emergency council with the elders in the situation room deep below the temple, as I imagine it, not to repent. Not to repent. Although the guard's story must have given them a terrible shock if they did not already have some suspicion of who it was they had handed over to the Romans to be crucified. Not to repent. Jesus himself had warned, neither will they believe even if someone returns from the dead to tell them. Not to repent, but to double down in their sin. Power must be preserved at all costs. There's nothing that can't be handled by good crisis management, by a superb PR campaign, and lots and lots of money. The corrupting power of money. And so, even before the apostles go on mission, there's already an alternate explanation about the empty tomb, that the disciples had stolen the body away while they were sleeping. You know, it said that a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth even has its boots on. And this is what happens. The powers of evil, the superhuman powers of evil, must have been sent reeling by Jesus' journey through the underworld as he tore away the black gates from the kingdom of darkness. But Satan bounces back quickly, remarkably quickly, and damage control is rapidly underway. Satan cannot stop the resurrection but he can hinder belief in the resurrection. And some explanation must be offered, however implausible, and it is an implausible explanation because the disciples will go to their deaths, banking their lives, insisting that Jesus had risen from the dead, not what fraudsters do. But Matthew offers no response. He states this is what's happening, but he's not... Alarmed, he's not shaken, he's not anxious by what the kingdom of darkness is up to because there is a greater and a more powerful kingdom that is at work. And Matthew and the other ten disciples, obeying Jesus' command, go north to Galilee. Eleven disciples, not twelve. One is missing, Judas, who betrayed Jesus. And in his commentary on Matthew, Frederick Dale Brunner writes, it is a defective 11th. Something is missing. A defective 11th. And he says, the church that Jesus sends into the world is 11-ish. Imperfect, fallible. Yet Jesus uses this imperfect church to do his perfect work. Brothers and sisters, this church is 11-ish. There is something missing. There is a lot missing, but Jesus is present and he's doing his work and he summons the disciples to himself in Galilee. In Galilee, the place where they had first been called by Jesus, where they had walked with their master, where they had witnessed his miracles, where they had heard his teaching. And Jesus brings them up on a high mountain. Mountains are very significant in the Gospels. And there is a striking contrast here, I think, with 
One of the other mountains that Matthew describes for us, I think in chapter 4, the high mountain that the devil had brought Jesus up to, to tempt him to abandon obedience to God, to offer him all the kingdoms of this world. A temptation our Lord refused, insisting on obeying the Father and following the path of suffering. And now, Jesus is on the high mountain that the Father is giving him, one that he has a right to. And he is going to summon all the kingdoms to obedience to himself. And as the disciples gather, Matthew notes that they worshipped him, but some doubted. I love the honesty of the Gospels. And in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you'll notice the disciples, they don't come off very well. Another evidence of their incompetence as fraudsters, if they were trying to set themselves up as religious authorities, demanding people's obedience, the Gospels are very raw and very honest about the failings of these men, including at the moment of Jesus' great triumph as the resurrected Lord is standing right in front of their eyes. And even as they're worshiping him, there is hesitation, there is wavering, and there is doubt. And brothers and sisters, if we are honest with each other today, don't we have to admit that mixed with our worship of Jesus, there is also some doubt, some wavering, some hesitation, some questioning? And yet, it is worshiping yet doubting disciples that Jesus uses to fulfill the Father's mission in history. They worship and doubt does not stop Jesus. He does not rebuke them. He goes on with the mission. One of those who doubted was Thomas. Thomas, who according to later tradition, very well-attested tradition, traveled to India to plant churches and share the gospel. And I suspect there are some of us here who can trace our spiritual lineage all the way back to the Apostle Thomas. The one who doubted the most traveled the farthest. Actually, all of us trace our faith back to the apostles. If you could assemble a spiritual family tree, the person who first told you about Jesus and the person who told that person, the person who told that person, we went all the way back, it would go back to Thomas and Matthew and the other apostles. And before them, to the apostles, to the apostles, the two Marys. And standing on this mountain, the risen Jesus gives the great commission to these worshiping yet doubting disciples. He gives them a mission to go out into all the world and make disciples and baptize them and teach them. But if you look at how Matthew describes it, this mission is bracketed by the power and the presence of Jesus. We're not left alone with some incredibly hard calling from the Lord. His authority and his presence undergird us and strengthen us, and assure us of success in this announcement of the gospel. Jesus stands before them and claims all authority in heaven and on earth. As the risen one, as the crusher of the serpent, as the defeater of death, Jesus claims supreme executive 
power over all that happens in this universe. He alone wields the scepter. The keys of death and the grave hang from his belt. Whatever the enemy may be about does not bother Jesus. He who sits in the heavens laughs at the counsel of the wicked because God's purposes will stand. Jesus is going to be sitting at the right hand of God. And all power and all authority belong to him. And in the end, there is nothing that will be able to resist the authority of the risen one. The one with all authority sends the disciples out to all nations. He claims universal dominion over all nations, over all peoples, over all tribes, over all languages, and over all tongues. The message of Jesus' lordship must go to all the coastlands and to all the islands, and they must all stream to the mountain to worship him. What we are announcing today to one another at Easter is a message for everyone. This is public news. And we're called, along with the disciples in their path, to make people who follow Jesus just like they were. To plunge men and women and children into the triune name, the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, to plunge them into the life of God that the risen Jesus is offering. Teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded us. It's quite possible that the mountain Jesus was standing on was the same mountain that he had preached his famous Sermon on the Mount recorded in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. Jesus is the legislator of all of our lives, and he claims the totality of our entire obedience with no apology. And then Jesus promises, I will be with you for all time. I will be with you always to the end of the age. That is how Matthew's gospel ends. And I imagine him having written these words, pushing his chair back from his desk, laying back his pen with a feeling of stunned amazement. Because the risen Jesus is the living one who is with us now as he's been with our fathers and mothers for many generations, as he will be with those who follow us. The resurrection is not some past historical event, although it is, that we are claiming and believing and proclaiming that this Jesus is alive and he is with us now by his Spirit. At Christmas, Jesus was announced as Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is with us. Brothers and sisters, we have not gathered to remember a dead prophet He's not moldering away somewhere in a grave in Palestine. His bones aren't sitting in a box somewhere underground. We worship a king who is living. He is powerful and he is present. He is with us now. And we gladly offer him our lives and we hear his urgent command with us. This Easter message is not just for your private comfort. Although it is profoundly consoling 
as we face decay and death and fear in our own lives, and as we wonder about our future. This is a message for the entire world. So let us go quickly and tell all peoples that he is not here. He is risen. Let's pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you as the one who raised your son from the dead, declared him to be the son of God with power, and exalted him to the very highest place. Lord, because he lives, we too shall live. He is here among us. It is his life that we are living. O Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of every person here to look and behold and to see the risen one, to hear his powerful living voice summoning us to rise and stand and go. To hear his word of comfort, his word of kinship, his word of command, and his word of promise. Jesus, we thank you that you are with us. You will never leave us, nor will you ever forsake us. And one day we will stand with you, with all the saints, with the apostles, with the women, with all those who have believed, who have testified, who have followed you, and say, this is the one we trusted. He is the lion, he is the lamb, and he is worthy of all our worship. In his name we pray, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.